Well, this morning's Bible reading is taken from Romans 9 and 10. If it's helpful, my page number is 945, but I don't know what yours is. And it says this. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and ceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But though Isaac, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise accounted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You shall say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will that, will what is moulded say to its moulder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, 
which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorance of being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what it does say, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who breach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. 
But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I'll make you a jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Well, there's an awful lot going on in those two chapters. So we will have a look at them a little bit, but I'm very likely to miss something. So it's okay because there will be a question time. You, you look surprised. <laughs> so we'll have a question time at the end of the service. So anything that I've missed, you can pick up on. Or if you're absorbed in what we've been talking about, you can, we can just discuss the things that we've been reflected upon this morning. That's question time. Um, I don't need to draw your attention to the sermon outline, which you have, which you can make notes on, or turn into paper airplanes, because, I mean, that's not the word of God, it's just a sermon outline. Um, so you don't have to be uh, reverent towards that. Um, but what you do need to be reverent towards is what we're going to do next. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we are able to meet again, once again, together in person. We do thank you for the encouragement that it is to see one another together. And we thank you that as we meet together, we can see something of this passage uh, happening uh, with one another. As we see that you have chosen us and predetermined that we would believe and trust by faith in your gospel. We thank you that we have heard the word that has been preached and listened to the voices that have spoken and been convinced and convicted of the truth that your son is the Christ. He is our saviour and he will bring us to the end. Amen. Well, as we begin today's sermon, I want to explore two aspects that will provide us with a a robust framework as we come to Romans 9 and Romans 10. The first is the creator-creature distinction. God is the uncreated creator, and we are his creatures. He has brought us into existence, and he sustains that existence. Now, I think we can subscribe to the creator-creature distinction, while at the same time not really appreciating the full and deep implications that arise from it. So, for eternity past, God has existed, and we did not. During this time, God wasn't accountable to us, for the simple reason we didn't exist. And therefore, we weren't in a position to hold God accountable to us. But nothing changes when he does create us. Do we now suddenly achieve this status by which we can hold God accountable simply by virtue 
that he has breathed life into us. Well, of course not. The very idea is preposterous. And yet so many people do hold God accountable. And I'm actually not talking here of the unbeliever. Now I'm talking about the evangelical Christian who believes God has to justify his behavior to us. So this is the first thing. Delving deep into the implication of the creator-creature distinction and appreciating that we are that which has been molded. And we're wrong to think we can start to question the molder's motives. To use Paul's language in 9 verse 20. The second thing is to approach the idea that God in some way created us to fill an empty space in him. And it's an answer that's quite common, and it's often given when the question's raised, why did God create us? Well, because he needed in some way, he needed us in some way, implying that in eternity past he's been lacking. There's been something that's absent. But this couldn't be further from the truth. That's why we read John 17 earlier on. It's quite possibly the most remarkable passage in the Bible. The Son speaks of his relationship with the Father. So intimate is the relationship between the two, he describes them as being one. This is the relationship that's been referred to, the Father has had with the Son throughout eternity. And this relationship between father and son means that God is not without anything. Far from lacking anything, the Trinity describes the perfect relationship in all its fullness. But the point of this prayer, the prayer that Jesus prays in John 17 is not actually to assert this relationship. That point has already been made earlier on back in John 10 verse 30. The point here is the Son is including all those that the Father has given him to also partake in this relationship. So they too will become one with the Father and Son. This really does raise the stakes a little. The Father really isn't going to approach this invitation flippantly. It's a great privilege to be included in this relationship. And so should we think any less of the Father if he guards this relationship ever so dearly and it remains his prerogative to determine both who's allowed in and who's kept out. It is a most cherished relationship. So it's no surprise that God says, To once again use the quote Paul draws our attention to in verse 15. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. 
and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul does provide us with the alternative option. If it isn't God's prerogative to have compassion on those he chooses, well then it depends on human will or human exertion, which puts everything in the most precarious position possible. If it really was down to our choice, what hope would there be? But how does all this in Romans 9 and 10 fit into the argument of Paul's letter to the Romans? Well, if you remember back last week when we looked at Romans 8, Paul has just asserted that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. To which immediately he anticipates the objection, well, what about Israel? They do seem to have been separated from God, despite them being God's chosen people. And Paul's first step in making his case is to talk about Abraham's offspring. Though Abraham does have other children, the two that are significant here are Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael, though not named, in Romans 9 is represented when Paul speaks of children of the flesh. He was the son that Abraham had with Sarah's servant, Hagar. But Isaac, he is called the son of the promise. He would be the son that God would give to Abraham and his barren wife, Sarah, at the age of 100. And so we have this, Isaac is chosen and Ishmael is rejected. Now questions could be raised over Ishmael. I mean, he would never have been welcomed into the children of God. Isaac was born to Sarah and Ishmael wasn't. So Paul silences any objectors with the next account. Not only did Jacob and Esau have the same mother, they shared the same womb. There really is nothing left to distinguish these two men. The only thing there is, is God's choice. And so when we read in verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, we're not to think of these as emotions, but rather actions. Jacob is chosen, and Esau is rejected. The next example that God gives is Pharaoh. God raised Pharaoh up so that God could demonstrate his mighty power through the rescue of his people from Egypt. The Exodus is an extremely significant phase of redemptive history. It's a magnificent revelation of God's ability to redeem his people from slavery. And the funny thing is, is all that wouldn't be possible but for Pharaoh. You know, the best option for Pharaoh, if he really wants to thwart God's plan, would be allow God to take his people at the very first request. 
had Pharaoh done this, God would have had no opportunity to demonstrate his command over creation. But Pharaoh doesn't. He acts precisely as we would expect him to. This is why God raised him up. And God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that each time Pharaoh refuses, God can act and reveal who he is, what he's like, his character, his power, his command of creation. It's worth spending a moment just to highlight verse 18 of Romans 9. It says this, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Notice Quintus' verse, the determining factor on whom God has mercy or hardens their heart is, simply put, God's will. It isn't that God first witnesses the individual's behaviour. And once having established that they have a tendency toward a hardened heart, he then follows their lead. It isn't some characteristic that's found in the individual that determines God's action. It is God's will. If anything else was the case, then that could be and would be a natural response that Paul could make to the next objection that we read in verse 19. Why does God still find fault? Well, Paul could give this as an answer. But he doesn't. Instead, Paul begins to talk about God's patience. He takes what he said about Pharaoh, but he brings this now on a much larger level. Paul explains that God delays his judgment on those who are prepared for destruction so that he can demonstrate his glory upon his vessels of mercy. There's two ways this is played out. The vessels see God's mighty act against the vessels of wrath, as we see exemplified in the case of Pharaoh. God reveals who he is and what he's like through redemptive history so that we can see the character of God. He raises up foils that contrast his character and enables to reveal his power over creation, his justice, mercy, love, and so on. Is it worth asking, could God reveal himself in some other way without raising up these foils? It's very hard to know how to answer that question. It's not how God has done it. He hasn't found an alternative. Rather, this is the way that God, in his wisdom, has chosen to reveal himself. Secondly, the delay on judgment means there's time for his vessels of mercy to repent. God's enemies are culpable. That's been established since Romans 1. 
From Genesis 3, there is an expectation that all humanity will be condemned. But God is patient, delays his judgment, so that he can call all those he's chosen to become his people. This all takes place through his redemptive plan, which is achieved through his obedient servant, the Christ. So, of course, the freedom of God's choice, determined by nothing more than his will, means not every child of Abraham is a true offspring. But also, because it's determined by his choice, it means that God isn't confined to make his choice among the people of Israel. Rather, as we read later on in Romans chapter 10, the righteousness of God includes the Gentiles as well. In fact, God's righteousness has been revealed through Christ as the climatic phase of God's redemption, redemptive plan. And it's the Christ who's become a stumbling block for Israel, but for all who believe... He's the end of the law for righteousness. God's sovereignty and humans' free will have been related to one another as the opposite side of a seesaw. God's sovereignty is on one side Humanity's free will on the other. Notice what happens. When one goes up, the other goes down. But what is freedom? Freedom to do what we desire? We've already seen in Romans 6 and 7 that our default desire is to follow our desire to sin. After all, we are slaves to sin. What we require is to be freed from our slavery so we can become slaves to God. That raises the question, what do we gain by raising humanity's free will and in doing so, bringing down God's sovereignty? When we do that, all we have is God is so inhibited, he's powerless to free us. To free us from our freedom to follow our desire to sin. But if we raise God's sovereignty, we have there the uncreated creator whose plan of redemption he can carry out according to his will, choosing all those he desires to free from sin through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. To bring it all the way around, 
And all those he frees, he does so to become part of that remarkable relationship enjoyed by the Father and Son we read of in John 17 earlier. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are completely uninhibited. We pray, Lord, that we'd appreciate that's not something to worry about, but that should give us a great confidence. Because after all, you are the uncreated creator, the benevolent creator who knows all things, who knows yourself and knows the world that you've made. We pray, Lord, that we trust you. The very thing that we're requested to do, to put our faith in you. For who better is there to make such a decision than the salvation of your people, than the Father himself? Amen. Should we skip questions? Okay, uh, let's have question time. Um, there's a lot going on here. Uh, there's a lot happening. And for some of us, it may be new. So I do appreciate there may be questions. Yes, yeah, sure. So, verse 4. So, just to repeat the question, can we explore what it means in verse 4 um, when it refers to adoption and glory, particularly given the fact that not all Israelites are part of the children of God? So, I think what's happening here is Paul is obviously starts off by talking about Israel generally as a nation and sort of describes this kind of situation in one sense, simply they are the God's chosen people, they've been chosen as a nation in as far as um, they are his representatives. And so because of that, they have all the privileges and benefits of being in that nation. But then, of course, the next step, his point is going to be, but although there is this great nation that belongs and have, has this adoption and, and have the promises, um, the fact that things have turned out the way they have is partly off the bat of the fact that not all of them are chosen. And later on, we do pick up the language of the remnant um, from Isaiah in verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of sons of Israel be at the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will, will be saved. So thinking in terms of the adoption, you know, back in the Exodus, they're referred to as... God's son why have you uh, taken my son because you've taken my son I will kill your firstborn so it's that sort of idea um, but the true Israel are going to be yeah, reduce that, that remnant if you see what I mean we're also probably going to engage with that a little bit more next next week's kind of thinking in terms of how things end up going full circle. Is that satisfactory? Yeah.
Yep, so just to repeat the question, so how do we think about the objection that an authentic relationship has to be um, determined through the free choice? So, you know, the um, human, as it were, has to make the choice to be in that relationship, otherwise it's not authentic. I don't think I repeated that particularly well, but you get the idea. Uh, so... Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think in one sense, if someone kind of presents that to me, I kind of feel a little bit like, okay, come and join in for a bit because this is going to take a bit of time to unravel. And I'd probably, you know, if, if this, you know, if I had like, I'd just be like, yeah, no, I'd take that, but let's over some time think about first of all the fact that God's creator what what the implications of that and you know I think to unpack that would take a bit of time and I guess if you know as you say Josh that's something you may have held in the past but as we've done stuff like the apologetic stuff and as we've done all this sort of stuff I think and you start working your way through the bible off you just get to the point where you think hang on a minute there's a sense in that God's sovereignty's got to come first otherwise too many of the things are compromised so I think I think ultimately my question would be it's going to take some time my, my response would be this is going to take some time however that's not satisfactory I know <laughs> so uh, um, yeah so I think so I think the thing is to I guess that kind of, I mean, yeah, you could come at it for so different, so many different angles, and I think that's why it takes the time. But you know, if we believe that our default position is our desire is only for sin, you know, that's our desire, that's where we go. So, given our free choice, what are we going to choose? Well, we're going to choose sin every single time. That's because we need to be, we need to break away from that. Interestingly, as well. So, oh, I don't know whether I want to go this direction. I'm thinking in terms of uh, an article by John Owen who talks in terms of grace. And he says, if you want to have grace, then you've got to allow for grace. Because as soon as you introduce, well, you know, I chose or I... You're in that thing of grace has been compromised. If if you've got things like prevenient, prevenient grace, so this idea that every single person gets a, a little dosage of grace, just enough for them to make the decision or not make the decision. Well, then God's sat there clicking his heels, waiting for us to... You know, all of a sudden, we have the power... And God becomes completely inhibited again. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, again, I don't think, I don't think we, we, I'm going to be sat there having this conversation. Oh yeah, no, oh yeah, no, definitely. That's I, I don't, I'm not, I don't think they're going to be convinced because I think when you're in that way of thinking, it's going to take a bit of time to unravel. But I think those sorts of things, yeah, I think, I think helpful.
Yes, Anna. Yeah, I think I think it's really helpful in in the sense that yeah, uh, take a bad analogy and have a go at making it better because yeah, I mean that's it. Yeah, so you you start off with that very first analogy and you've got oh yeah, people are all scrambling to get on the boat and God's sort of like just kicking them off with hitting them with his barge pole and saying no, get off. And you're like, okay, no, we've got a problem. We're going to stop, stop right there because that's just not the analogy. And as you say, it would be more, absolutely more realistic because their desire is to swim away from God. It very much isn't. They're not desperate to get on the... I mean, that's the whole thing about um, what we've read in Romans 1, 18 to 32, when you've got Genesis 3 in the fall. Human, humanity's default position is to swim away from God. So there is no way that they would do that so the question then is, well, how will anyone be saved? And precisely, it's up to God. It's his grace that will choose who will, he will lasso into the boat. Or, yeah, I mean, yeah, let, let's not go to, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to, yeah, we, we're not going to save this analogy. But I think, I think, yeah, I think you're spot on, spot on the money, yeah. And I think that's the thing. And I think going back to Josh's question, um, that's the problem because people... They won't, they won't say, yeah, no, no, people are trying to get on the boat. They, they, want, they think people are trying to get on the boat. So there's a, there's a sort of a more fundamental problem before you get to here that they're thinking, yeah, people are scrabbling to get on the boat. Um, and so, yeah, that's where the sort of problem lies. Yeah. Right, we have had three. So I, I think we're safe to move on. Obviously, if you have got questions about this, uh, you can drop me an email. I'll get to you at some point. We, I mean, the other thing as well, I, my suggestion is hold off because we're doing this equipped service because save them all for, for aging and I'll make sure I'm not available that week. <laughs> we do cover this elsewhere. We cover it a li little bit in... We, we provide a foundation for it in the doctrine course. And we cover it a little bit when we talk about open theism at the end of the church history and also earlier. In, so, you know, we, we keep revisiting this sort of stuff. Okay, let's stop before I just keep going on and on and on. We're going to sing now, The Lord's My Shepherd.